I was having a wee run through this sermon this afternoon. Honestly, I don't make this up on the spot. And uh, as I was taking a run through it, I suddenly realized about halfway through, this isn't the right sermon that I'm practicing here because I've been trying to work ahead on this and I was trying to do work on next week's. And I suddenly thought, have I run out of steam here? Because it just came to a very abrupt end and I realized that I was actually preaching a week in advance. But I'm looking down here, and this is definitely the right sermon for this evening. But if I start up my sermon tonight by saying, don't come to church next week. In fact, don't bother turning up at all. Don't bother coming back to this place. We're going to shut the church down. Well, first of all, you'd wonder what's going on in my head. And then number two, rightly, you would think it's time that we look for a new minister in Connor. We better have a word with Mervyn afterwards and see what we can do here. And yet, that is exactly the high-risk strategy that the Apostle Paul uses here in 1 Corinthians 15 to argue the central importance of the truth of the resurrection in our Christian faith. For Paul, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus is like one of those bottom pieces in the game of Jenga. And lots of you here will at some stage have tried the game of Jenga with family or with friends, and you know that the basic idea that you're trying to get this tower of wooden blocks to go higher and higher and higher, and you have to choose so carefully the wooden block that you're going to move, especially if you're beginning to try and move one which is right down at the base of the tower. And what Paul argues here in 1 Corinthians 15 is that if the resurrection goes, then everything that we believe about Jesus and the gospel topples. It completely collapses like a Jenga tower when someone moves the wrong piece away. Paul argues that the resurrection is the foundation of our hope. And so, I want to invite you to turn with me again this evening to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, so that we can explore this whole truth of resurrection. We're taking our time to do that on the weeks that are leading up to Easter. And remember last week, Paul's introduction to this chapter, how he starts the chapter, he says to the Corinthian believers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preach to you. And in fact, when you look at the, the literal translation of the language that Paul was writing in, what he's actually saying in this verse, and it's a really challenging thing, he says, I want you to get to know the gospel better. He's saying to the believers in this church in Corinth and to all of us who love and follow Jesus here tonight, yes, you might think that you know the gospel. You might reckon that you know everything that there is to know, but I want you to get to know the gospel in an even better way. And so, last time we discovered three important things about the gospel that Paul tells us in the opening verses of this chapter. He, he told us of the gospel that it saves. Verse 2, by this gospel, you are saved. 
if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. And we might think, well, how can a message, how can a set of words save someone? Well, in the sense that the gospel, the good news, is about someone, that the gospel points us to the one who alone can save the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul tells us about the gospel that it's trustworthy, so that he says to the Corinthians about this message in verse 3, for what I received, I passed on to you. And that's so important that we know that the gospel is not just something that Paul invented in his mind, that this is not a new idea that Paul is writing to the Corinthians in this moment, but that this is something that has been passed on to him from the time when Jesus was here on the earth ministering. And finally, last time we discovered that Paul tells us that the gospel works, that the gospel is a message that changes hearts and lives. And Paul is a great example of that. So, in this chapter, Paul takes time to share his own testimony, and he talks about God's grace at work in his life in verse 10. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace to me was not without effect. In other words, His grace works. And if you're a believer in Christ tonight, isn't that your experience too, that God's grace has been effective in your life, has brought about change, has brought you out of darkness and into God's wonderful light? And because the gospel works, because God's grace is effective in people's lives, that gives us confidence tonight. It gives us confidence if we are believers in Christ, because really it places all of the emphasis on the Lord and what He does, much more than what we seek to do. And so, there's great certainty and assurance in knowing that this is God's work in our lives. And it gives us confidence as we proclaim this message, as we're called to do, because we do that knowing that as we share the gospel with others, it will be effective. It will bring about change in their lives. And absolutely central to this gospel is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, which is the great foundation of our hope in such a hopeless world. So, Paul devotes the rest of this great chapter to the truth of the resurrection, both the resurrection of Christ and the future resurrection of those who believe in Him. That's really important in all of this. And so, we come tonight to this high-risk strategy of Paul where he argues that if the resurrection is not true, then my preaching and your faith is futile. It is completely pointless. That if the resurrection is not true, we might as well just call it quits now. I'll send you on out early. We'll enjoy the remainder of this beautiful evening on the first night of British summertime. We might as well just go out for a good walk 
and keep ourselves fit, because after all, it's only then really this life and our health in this life that actually matters, that we would be far better spending our money and our time pursuing other things. And that's a really provocative way to begin His teaching on the resurrection. I don't know about you, but it makes me want to check out the rest of this chapter and what it is that Paul is saying. So, let's do that together now. And tonight, I want us to look at three things that Paul tells us about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. First of all, he tells us that the resurrection is very important. Look again at verse 3, and we were looking at this verse last week, and Paul there says, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. The most critical, the most important thing, the things that the Corinthian Christians and all believers need to be reminded of. What are these centrally important things? Well, here's the the summary of that message again in verses 3 and 4, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So, these are the, the key moments in Christ's ministry. These are the central, the most important things that we believe about Jesus. And Paul tells us that they happened according to the Scriptures. Remember from last time what that actually means. He's not saying there that this is what happened according to what we're told in the Gospels, because the Gospels were still under construction at this point, but he's referring back to what we call the Old Testament, the Scriptures that he and his fellow believers had, the the Hebrew Scriptures. And what he's really saying is all of these events fulfill what we were told about in the Scriptures. And it's really important tonight for us to see and understand this about the Christian faith, that these are the the non-negotiable things, if you like. These are the things that we are absolutely required and called upon to believe if we profess to be believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because so often in the history of the church, people have tried to mold Christian belief around their outlook on life. And that happens especially in our generation. It is a hallmark of our generation, and it's seen increasingly in churches, even churches that would name themselves as being Bible-based and evangelical, where so many people coming to those churches say, well, yeah, you know, I'll believe the bits that seem reasonable to me, but I'm not going to bother with those bits that don't compute with my understanding of the world. And that's exactly what was happening here in the church of Corinth 2,000 years ago. There were were people within that congregation in Corinth, and they were saying, yeah, you know, we, we believe in Jesus, no doubt about it. After all, we are Christians. That's our name. We believe Him, and we believe in Him. In fact, we, we might even go as far to say that we believe that He rose again. 
But as for the idea that other people will be re resurrected, ridiculous. No way. What a, what a crazy idea. And so the Apostle Paul takes time to explain the importance of our belief in resurrection. And as we'll discover towards the end and as we progress through this series towards Easter Sunday, what we see is that Jesus' resurrection is a complete game changer. It has massive implications for those who truly believe in Him, for they will share in His resurrection. And believer in Christ, you need to hear that tonight and understand that and, and be thrilled by that. You, as a believer in Christ, will share in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Paul begins by challenging those with limited faith in the power of God. He said, well, if God can't raise us to life again, that means He could not raise Jesus to life again. And therefore, the whole thing is just one big lie. And he tells us, if God did not raise Christ to life again, then our faith is useless, as he describes it in verse 14. And then in verse 17, our faith is futile. It is just a waste of time. But I want you to see that Paul doesn't actually stop there. He goes much further. Look at what he says in verse 19. And really take note of this. He argues, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. So, Paul isn't just saying something that's neutral. Oh, well, if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, then, you know, it's a bit of a waste of time. I suppose we have nothing to lose, but there's something that we're not going to gain. Though he says, actually, it's much worse than that. If Christ was not raised from the dead, those of you who are professing belief in Him are to be pitied more than anyone else in this world. What a claim. Now, that's a verse that demands a closer look. Why does Paul say this? Well, remember the context in which Paul writes this letter to the church in Corinth. They, like all of their fellow congregations, are suffering. They're going through persecution. Remember that back in verse 1, Paul says of them, that they have taken their stand for the gospel, and it's a hard thing to do. They are suffering day in, day out because of their belief in Christ, and Paul is writing to them as someone who is also suffering because of his love for Jesus. And for what? They've given up so much. So much. If it's for nothing more than a better life here and now, then what's the point? And I reckon for us tonight, Paul's argument here is such an important corrective to us as a church today. Some of you are old enough here tonight 
to know that there has been a swing of the pendulum in your lifetime, that 50 years ago and before, that people were very much focused in their Christian life and their Christian faith on what lay ahead. We talk much more about heaven, about glory, about that inheritance that we thought about at the beginning of our worship tonight. Whereas these days, as Christians, we tend to be much more fixated on here and now. That Christ has come to set us free. That He's come to enable us to live life in all of its fullness. And of course, the gospel is both and. The gospel concerns our here and now, our tomorrow, but it also concerns our eternal destiny, and we should never lose sight of that. Our belief that Jesus rose again through the power of God, and that that same power will raise us, is so incredibly important. The resurrection is vital and central to what we believe. But then second, Paul tells us the resurrection is true. So, the great declaration in verse 20, after arguing all of this, he, he states so clearly, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And I think that that is the high point of this chapter. That is the, the critical verse, and we'll return to that verse again next week. And it is one of the most significant verses in all of Scripture. But is Paul's declaration here simply a case of blind faith? Well, I want you to consider the Apostle Paul, the guy from a legal background with a forensic mind who carefully presents the evidence that there is of Christ's resurrection. He, he notes the appearances. If you, you scan down through verses 5 to 8, he begins by mentioning Cephas, and that is Peter. And, and I wonder why he mentions Peter first, why he singles him out. Perhaps it's because Peter, in meeting with the risen Lord, was transformed so much and was restored to service once again. And then he, he mentions all of the disciples referred to as the twelve who met with the risen Christ at various times. Then in verse 7, he refers to all the apostles. He probably has in mind a time when Jesus met with all of the apostles together in the one place, perhaps when He ascended to heaven once again. Paul, in those verses, mentions James, who most scholars agree was the brother of Jesus, who at first did not believe. What was it that changed the mind of this man, James? Was it seeing the risen Christ that persuaded him of the truth about Jesus? And then he mentions 500 people that Jesus appeared to. Most of them were still alive at the time of writing and gave testimony that they had met with the risen Christ. And to this, I would add one further piece of evidence, one further proof. 
And that is the changed lives of these apostles, of people like Peter and Paul. Men who died because of their belief in Christ. And when you think about it, who would die for a lie? Who would go to their death proclaiming something that they know in their hearts is not true? One of the very influential Christians of the, the, the 20th century was Charles Coulson. And Charles Coulson was a, a powerful man in the United States. He worked for the Nixon administration when President Richard Nixon was in office. And of course, you know about what happened to Richard Nixon and that administration, how it fell due to the Watergate scandal. And Charles Coulson was there on the fringes of that. In fact, he ended up in prison because of his role. And he was gloriously saved. He found and experienced the, the grace of God in Christ. And later, he wrote about his role in the Watergate scandal. And he thought about the resurrection of Jesus and the men who followed the Lord Jesus. And he said, here were us, a group of men, some of the most gifted people in the United States, people who were well-educated, who were good at making an argument. And within a few weeks, our conspiracy fell to pieces. The first sign of pressure, and we all cracked. And then he compares that to the disciples of Christ who went to their death claiming that Jesus is alive, claiming Jesus is risen. And he points out that none of them ever recanted, none of them ever relented, none of them ever said, actually, just before I die here, I want to say this is not actually the case. And then Paul gives one further piece of evidence, one other person that the risen Christ had appeared to, and that was himself. And in talking about himself in this chapter, well, is this a case of Paul bigging himself up? Well, not at all. It's actually all about God's grace. It's about making much of God. He shares his own story of meeting with and being transformed about Jesus, and he's quick to point out it's all about God's grace, effective in his life. I think there are particular people the experience of the Apostle Paul speaks to. Remember, he was the guy with the intellectual forensic mind. He was the man who thought that he had it all sorted out in his mind. He knew the score. And then the Lord Jesus caught up with him. And the least likely person to bow before the Lord Jesus, to proclaim him as Savior and Lord, did that. And tonight, maybe that's you. Maybe you have it all sorted out in your mind that all of this stuff about Jesus all of this stuff that you hear about in church, it is just not true at all. Or maybe for some here this evening, you have a deep concern, a real burden for a loved one 
because you know that's exactly how they have it in their mind, that they think they've got it all sussed out, that they know best, and that they conclude that all of this is completely wrong. There are still Pauls about in our world and in our lives, and their instincts tell them that the whole Christ thing is all wrong. And then to their surprise, they discover that Jesus is alive and really is who He claimed to be. And there's notable examples of this within the lifetime of many of us here. Lee Strobel, an award-winning journalist with the Chicago Tribune, a graduate of Yale Law School. He was skeptical about the whole Christian thing. And then to his consternation, his wife became a Christian. And so, to satisfy his intellectual curiosity, he decided to do a journalistic investigation of the life of Jesus, and he was saved. And he went on to write The Case for Christ, which became a best-selling book, arguing the truth of the gospel. Or Josh McDowell, who had an unhappy early life because of an alcoholic father and because of suffering abuse at the hands of another man. And when he got away to college, he decided to do a paper deconstructing the story of the Gospels to disprove their historical accuracy. But instead, he became a, a believer in Christ, and he later wrote evidence that demands a verdict. And if you're cynical, if you're skeptical, I, I warmly recommend these books to you. Paul is absolutely certain the resurrection is true. And then finally, and, and very, very briefly, Paul tells us the resurrection is very good news. Remember how Paul introduces the subject of the resurrection, how he begins this chapter. In verse 1, I want to remind you of the gospel. Verse 2, by this gospel you are saved, and gospel literally means good news. And yet, as we were thinking about last Sunday evening, we tend to have a very narrow definition of the gospel. We think that the gospel is simply to do with the cross. The cross is hugely important. The cross is vital to our salvation, and we will be glorying in the cross in these coming weeks leading up to Easter, no doubt about it. What we gain from the death of Jesus from the blood of the Lamb is immense. But it's so important that we keep in mind Paul's summary of the whole gospel, the whole good news story of Jesus. Remember those verses again, the things of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, that He was buried, and then that He was raised on the third day. Hallelujah! The resurrection is a massive part of this good news story. And remember what the problem is here in Corinth. Not so much that people are doubting Christ's resurrection, they are doubting the resurrection of others. What was true of Him, they think, could never be true of us. 
And that's a great challenge today. That people can't see how the resurrection of Christ relates to them. And so that's what Paul explains in the rest of chapter 15. That's what we're going to come to next week. But we simply want to acknowledge tonight, right at the end, that the risen Christ that Paul testifies to is described in verse 20 as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The risen Jesus leads the way. And do you have that hope? In such an uncertain world, in a world where we never know what a day will bring, and many of you can testify to that even over this past week, do you have that hope in Christ? For He is our only hope in life and death. And we're going to sing of that now.